couple of things, if you turn to Genesis chapter 4, we're going to be there as an introduction as well, but we're, we're in Matthew 6, 9-13 this morning, and we're praying in Matthew, the other two churches are praying the Lord's Prayer, but in the Luke version, and I, I, I guess I could say I begged Travis to let me preach out of the Matthew passage, because I'm more familiar with it and I think it speaks to us a little bit more clearly than the shortened version in Luke. So I'm asking the question this morning, what can we rightly request of our Father? And so some people call this the Lord's Prayer. It's probably more appropriate to call it the Disciples' Prayer. But before we begin, I want to set the stage for us and go way back to Genesis chapter 4, because that helps us understand more about how we should come to the Father when we pray. So we'll turn there in just a second, but let me read the verses to you. I don't have anything on the overhead because I'm certain you know the verses well enough. Jesus said in verse 9 of chapter 6, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I think one of the problems we have when we come to the Lord's Prayer is the same problem we have when we come to Psalm 23. That it's extremely familiar to us, and we can actually know these passages mechanically or even mindlessly, I think. They're easily repeated even as children. And that's the problem when we know certain passages by rote. We can say them without even really knowing or thinking about what the point of them is. And so let me just say that I think that the point of the Lord's Prayer this morning is to gain a better understanding of who our Father is so that we can know that those requests that we might ask of Him are in alignment with His holy character. That's the gist of what we're looking at this morning. And that's the first thing that Jesus mentions about praying. He says, talk to the Father about the Father. And then you'll be able to rightly request from the Father what you need because of your understanding of His character. But it's more than just talking to the Father. It's talking to the Father in a familiar way that demonstrates that we have a right understanding of who He is. And we can go all the way back to the book of Genesis to see how critical it is for us to correctly understand who God is when we come to Him. And nothing has changed for us in the New Testament either. You'll remember back in Genesis chapter 4, it was a Saturday morning most likely, It was a time for worship. And in the course of time, God asked the two sons of Adam and Eve to bring sacrifices that represented their understanding of who God is. And Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground because he was a tiller of the ground. And Abel was the keeper of the sheep and goats. And he brought the firstlings from his flock, it says. And so their offerings reflected their spiritual understanding of who God is. And so in Genesis chapter 4, 
we see that the focus is on the person and not the offering because of the way that the Hebrew repeats the pronoun. It says, Abel, he, he also, he brought. And the text tells us that God respected Abel and his offering, but didn't respect Cain and his offering. God looked on Abel's offering with interest. He didn't just glance at it and have a slight regard for it. He gazed upon Abel's offering with approval. He inspected Abel's offering closely. He looked with favor on his offering. He saw it with devotion. Because Abel's offering represented that Abel understood who God is. Abel had regard for the person and the character of God when he brought his offering to him. And Abel understood the character of God to be one that atones for sin. His offering represented that God covers over sin. And we know that this is what the meaning of that text is because as we go on further, it explains this to us. Now that also means that when Abel came, he recognized the presence of his own sin when he came before the Lord. And that God was merciful and atoning, and atoning for his sin. Now I gather that Cain and Abel knew immediately that Abel's offering was respected and Cain's was not. There must have been some inner awareness of a divine response from the unseen one that let them know this. And Cain knows that God accepts Abel's offering and he's jealous and enraged, the text says, that God would not regard his offering with approval. And eventually God says to him, literally, Cain, why is your face fallen? Apparently Cain couldn't keep his rage off of his face, couldn't hide his emotions, and it was a dead giveaway. And the question that he asks him is, Cain, why are you burning with rage? Why is there a fire kindling in you? God sees that Cain's offering shows he hasn't dwelt with his own sin in bringing his offering to God. And then in verse 7, God says to him, If you are thorough and diligent and do what is ethically right, you will make the right assessment of who I am and you'll see yourself as you really are, Cain. You will be able to lift your face, he says. You'll be able to look everyone in the eye. Because you'll be able to bear up under the burden of your sin and your guilt. Because you'll understand something about me. You'll understand that I am gracious and merciful in forgiving sin. I atone for it. I cover it up. But if you aren't thorough and diligent in making this observation about yourself when you come to me, he says, there's a consequence that happens. That sin that you have failed to recognize lies waiting for you, he says. And its desire, its longing is for you. Its turning is toward you. And it wants more than anything to destroy you, but you must rule over it. Folks, God hasn't changed since Genesis chapter 4. Nothing has changed in the way we approach 
our Father today. And what A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, is true about us today. And this is the reason Jesus begins to teach us about praying, beginning with knowing who the Father is. Tozer said, What comes into your mind when you think about the Father will predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. He said, there is scarcely an error in doctrine or ethics that cannot be traced finally to contemptible and imperfect thoughts about the person of God. And so consider this morning that we need to come to the Father in prayer, seeing him for who he really is, as he's revealed himself to be to us, seeking his atonement for our sin and grace in forgiving it. And then we will be accepted when we come to him in prayer, just like back in Genesis 4. You'll then be able to bear up under the reality of the burden of your sin when you understand how gracious and merciful the Father is when you come to him in prayer first. And folks, this should be the first reminder when we begin to approach God in prayer. But it should also be the motivation under which we come here every Sunday morning considering our frailty and sinfulness before a holy God. And so Jesus begins to teach us how to pray here in the disciples' prayer. And he gives us kind of a model prayer, a formula, a summary of six things that we might rightly request of our Father, the author and giver of life. We rightly first seek the Father's interests in three things when we come to him in prayer. That he will sanctify his name. That he will establish his kingdom. That he will accomplish his will as in heaven, so in the earth. And we assume that he wants those things accomplished more than any other interests he has when we approach him in prayer. He wants to see his name sanctified among the people of this world. He wants to see his kingdom established here on earth. He wants to see his will accomplished as in heaven and so on earth. And when we pray first that he bring these good things to pass for us, we acknowledge in our coming to him what his priorities are. And then we are able to see more clearly what kind of requests we are able to ask of him. Because, folks, listen, what could be better for any of us than to have God's holy and unique name set apart in the hearts of men in this world? Where his perfect character is established as the law on earth in his kingdom. And his goodwill and favor toward us is realized here on the earth. And when we come acknowledging these things, then we can rightly request three of our own interests to the Father. That he meet our daily needs. That he pardon our continual sins and continue to renew our relationship with him. And that he protect us from moral peril. 
Now, the Lord isn't saying that this is the prayer you should recite when you come to him. He says, pray like this. He doesn't say, pray this prayer. It's not a request to recite the prayer in Matthew, because the prayer in Luke is similar but different. It's shorter. Saying the Lord's Prayer isn't some sort of magical formula. It's not meant to be repeated mechanically or mindlessly before the Lord. And I'm sure you're aware of that, but, but a lot of people in the world aren't aware of that. For example, Notre Dame football team recites the King James Version before every football game. Beyonce's touring band recites the King James Version of the Lord's Prayer before they go on stage, just verbatim, sort of mechanically, as if it's some kind of magic formula. And I think that misses the point. The point is not what to pray or how to pray, but knowing to whom it is that you should pray. And so the prayer, in essence, is about recognizing that we are people in need, coming to the only one who can grant us what we need. And Jesus tells us how we should begin approaching God in our prayer. Talk to the Father first about the Father. Make the correct assessment about his character as you approach him, requesting what you need. Just like in Genesis 4. And then you'll be better equipped to ask him for the things you might rightfully ask of him. And so he begins in verse 9 and says, Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. It's, inter it's, it's interesting to me that Jesus didn't choose to identify God by any of the multiple Old Testament names for God in the way he's asked Israel to identify him. He doesn't say, Pray Adonai, Lord Master. He doesn't say, El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. He doesn't say, pray El Elyon, the Most High God. He doesn't say, pray Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, my miracle. He doesn't say, pray Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Or Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Or Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. No, Jesus told his disciples to, go, to call God by his New Testament name, our Father. Our Father, the Father of mercies, whose dominant trace before all of us is genuine goodness. And it's because God is always good to us that we should desire that he sanctify his name. That he will establish his kingdom. And that he will accomplish his will as in heaven, so on the earth. And we know that God is referred to as Father in a variety of ways in the New Testament. We are to call him Abba Father. He is God the Father. He is God our Father. He is our God and Father. He is the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Jesus is simply teaching us that the intimate relationship that he has with the Father is available to us as his believing children. And that's how he wants us to come to him. So praying to our Father acknowledges that we understand that our relationship with God is familiar and intimate. In that relationship, we are his children then being instructed 
how to be submissive to him. When we call him Father, we are acknowledging that we live in a loving and protecting and caring relationship to him. And the fact that he loves us casts out any fear of condemnation that he might have towards our sinfulness. And so when we have a proper understanding of who our Father is and what kind of God he is and how he cares for us as a father cares for his children, we'll have a better understanding of how to pray to him for the things that we need. Well, then Jesus says, the next thing is to say, hallowed be your name. Hallowing God's name is sanctifying his name. It's setting apart God's character and attributes in our hearts, exalting him as being absolutely worthy of our devotion and loving admiration. It means that we recognize that in his holiness and separateness, he will not tolerate us considering that there's some other equal rival to him. All of God's delight is rooted in his perfect, holy character. Likewise, he won't tolerate our misunderstanding that there's some other thing that could share his exquisite glory. Calling his name holy means that we recognize he cannot consent to sin of any kind and expects that those of us who call on him recognize that about his character just like Abel did. His name simply sums up all that he is. And so we confess, Father, we want you to be seen as the God that you are, distinct from all your creatures and any other beings in your might and in your majesty, in your purity and in your goodness, And in your holiness, you are completely separate from any of your creatures. And how we think about God's name and his character is of the utmost importance then. And that's the reason this is the first thing Jesus brings to our attention. His name is blessed and glorious and is exalted above all other blessings and praise. And then he says in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so let your kingdom come is a request for God to be actively involved, bringing about and establishing the reality of his kingdom. In fact, this entire prayer acknowledges that God not only transcends this world, but that he's also actively involved with meeting the needs of the people who call on his name. In this request, we are expressing our submission to God's sovereign rule in the universe and particularly among the children that he loves. And so we pray, let your will come to pass and happen, Lord, as you see fit, without qualification from us. Because what you will is always right and good. God's will is done in heaven without God seeking anyone's advice or any suggestions from a second party as to what should happen next. God's will is done in heaven where the Psalms say he has established his throne and where his kingdom rules over all. 
He does exactly as he sees fit there without any vagueness or any uncertainty. Lord, we want the same thing to happen here. And our saying, your will be done, summarizes that God is sovereign in the realm of prayer, just as he is sovereign in every every other realm in this world. And so that's why we want his purposes to prevail in the lives of men and in the affairs of mankind in general. Because nothing could be better for us than for his, his purposes and goodness to prevail in this world. Because he is good. There isn't in any way, this isn't to be construed in any way as being fatalistic from our perspective. It means rather that God has an all-wise plan leading to an all-wise end that he is surely bringing to pass. And then in our prayers, we are confessing our submission to his will because nothing could be better for each of us than to have God's will take place in our lives. So if you're an active Bible student like most of you are, Naturally, there would arise a question, I think, here. Well, why pray if we know that God is sovereign in every realm? What's the point? I think it would be better to think of this in another way. Since God is absolutely sovereign, this is all the more reason to pray. Or since God is sovereign, what alternative is there but to pray in submission to his will? that we would align our wills with what he desires for our goodness. And so we should understand that our prayers are the expression of our free wills within the sphere of God's sovereign will. Our prayers are the expressions of our free wills within the sphere of God's sovereign will. And he wills to work through our surrendered wills, not to subvert the freedom of our wills. And then Jesus tells us, once we understand God's interests, what it is that we can pray for. And he says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. I think this is simply our request for food of any kind. And that we as his children are entirely dependent upon him for our life and its necessities. We're saying, God, out of your unmerited goodness, please give us the daily sustenance we need day by day, which encourages us to continue to seek his will in providing week by week and month by month, day after day. And not only are we to recognize that the possession of our physical life is a gift from the Father, but its continuousness is also dependent on him. One theologian put it like this. He said, Thus, as children, we are to pray to the Lord as our Father, asking Him that He would give us food to eat and clothing to wear, that He would grant us health to partake of that food, and that He would render our food as our nourishment, since in all things we are dependent upon the Lord and are to expect all things from Him. And then he says in verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. In the Lord's 
prayer in Luke chapter 11, it says to forgive us our sins. Here it says, forgive us our offenses, our sin debts. This is a request that acknowledges our dependence on God for our spiritual life as well. And so sincere prayer, honest prayer before the Lord for forgiveness of sins means that we know our guilt. That we are grieved about our guiltiness before him. That we acknowledge him to be worthy of punishing us for sin and see God as justified in executing judgment upon us, though he won't when we believe. So our forgiving others for their sins against us means that as we approach the throne of grace to seek the forgiveness of our sins from our Father, we are acknowledging that the need for ourselves to forgive those who have sinned against us. This is reasonable, isn't it, folks? If someone is enraged against his neighbor and lashes out in anger in order to avenge himself, then everyone can understand that that person is not in any condition to pray, Father, forgive us. It's not that we obtain forgiveness because we forgive others, but that implied in forgiveness is an understanding of what it really means to be forgiven by a holy God. And so our forgiveness is a declaration to the offender that we do not entertain any hatred or any aversion or any wrath in our heart towards that other person and that we do not wish evil upon him due to his offense against us. And finally, the more difficult line verse in this, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think this is just asking the Lord to keep us from a time of testing and future trials that might lead us to sin. We know that God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. I think this is just a general request for protection from our sinfulness. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are not praying to avoid all temptations or trials or circumstances in which we might be able to fall. We're not praying that. God often leads his children into various trials to humble them and to sanctify them. He led Jesus into a trial when he was the weakest of all to be tempted by the devil himself for 40 days. Rather, the petition might be to not let the temptation get a hold of us, nor have power over us. Do not allow us in our trials to give ourselves over to any opportunities to sin in the trial. Don't let us be overpowered by the temptation or the trial. By the way, those are the same word in the New Testament. Trial and temptation are the same word. Do not let us be ensnared so that unrighteousness would gain the upper hand in our life. And yet, we should also say, if, however, it pleases you, Father, to let situations arise in our lives and snares where you have laid them for us, keep us from being mortally wounded by the choices we make in light of those. 
Don't allow the godly father to be grieved nor blaspheme your holy name in the choices that we make. Well, as I've spent time thinking about this passage in the last week or so, I want to share some things that I've learned about myself that you might be interested in thinking about. And I want to go back to finish the story of Cain and Abel the way the scriptures do and ask another question. And the question is, under what circumstances did men first begin to proclaim God's name? To desire to encounter him personally, to desire to summon him to meet our needs and actually pray expectantly to him. When did that first begin to happen? Well, we know that Adam and Eve had three sons. We know what happened to the first two. Cain killed Abel, and eventually Cain is told to go off into the land of Nod, which means the land of wandering, and he doesn't wander there. He sets up his own kingdom and has a line of inheritance there, and he is completely wiped out, by the way, of any kind of... uh, inheritance is in terms of the Lord coming through his line. But Genesis 4.25 says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore him a son named Seth. And Seth in Hebrew means appointed. And Eve says, God appointed me, he sethed me another seed, instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And so even in Genesis 4, at the conclusion of that chapter, back in the beginning of man's history, God appointed a seed into the human line of men that would begin to worship and obey him. But something had to happen first. And it was from that line of Adam, Seth, and Enosh that the God-man would come who would fulfill all of those promises to us, like Travis preached on Christmas Eve. And then the text says in Genesis 4.26, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then the last verse of chapter 4 is, Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so Adam and Eve's grandson, Seth's son Enosh, was the line of man that began to call on the name of the Lord to summon him to meet their needs. And it's in the meaning of the name Enosh that we discover the motivation for why we call on the Lord to meet our needs in the Lord's prayer and to summon our Father to rescue us and to meet our needs. And this is why this is important and why it matters. Because the meaning of the word Enosh comes from the word that means weak and sick. In the seed of Seth, God provides man a new awareness of our weakness and our mortality, where man begins to recognize his frailty and humanness, and that becomes the basis for his requests for deliverance from the Father. When men first began to understand that they were weak and frail and mortal, and sick, and human, and in need of everything, then they began to call on the name of the Lord. And men began to summon the Father for help when they understood who they really were in relationship to who God is. 
And so here's the first lesson of application that I learned. We are never trying to escape or deny the time-space being limitation of my creaturely existence when I pray. We are always coming to the Father completely awakened to the reality of our creaturely status before our Father. We are creatures before the God and author of life. And that's something we miss when we think that we should be reciting this prayer. When I come to the Father in prayer, I'm trying to break free from any thoughts that shut down the reality of my creaturely dependence on God. And I'm reminding myself that because of that status, the reality of that status, everything I need comes from the hand of God. Here's the second lesson of application I learned. If if that is true, then I shouldn't be surprised that the real creaturely me is struggling to speak to him. Because I'm speaking out of weakness and frailty and sinfulness and corrupt thinking. I'm speaking from my flaws and my imperfections and my wrong thoughts and my misunderstandings and my confusion because I'm always aware that I'm seeking to hear from the author and giver of life. Here's a third lesson of application. Because we are in a relationship with a heavenly loving father, that doesn't mean we should ask for whatever we want. Because often what we want, the Father would not desire to give us. And so in our asking, we should never assume that he's obligated to respond in one way or another. But he does know what is best for us. And I think there's a misrepresentation of the New Testament passage in Matthew 7, 7 that allows people to make a mistake here. Like everything else in Scripture, we need to take it in context. And so we should ask then, what is the context of Matthew 7, 7? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Folks, this is surely not meaning what many people have thought that it means. 21st century men have certainly abused this passage. This passage in Matthew 7 needs to be understood within the context of Jesus and what he has already taught us about coming to the Lord in prayer. So there's a couple of ideas, a couple of reminders here looking back over the sermon. Understanding who the Father is as he has revealed himself to us means that you can't understand who he is without knowing the scriptures. Scripture informs us how to pray correctly to our Father. We are always seeking to acknowledge in our coming to him what his main priorities and interests are before we ask of any of our own. 
that he will sanctify his name in our hearts, that he will establish his kingdom here on earth, and that he will accomplish his will as in heaven, so here on the earth. And then we will be able to see what kind of requests we might rightly ask of him. For everyone who asks within the parameters of the Lord's prayer will receive what he asks for. When he always comes seeking the interests and the priorities of the Lord first. Because he was always seeking the wisdom of the Lord and his kingdom and his righteousness first. We'll find that there's no reason to continue to ever be anxious again as to whether or not God will meet those needs. What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What are we going to drink? And Jesus answers all these questions at the end of chapter 6 in Matthew. And he says, because tomorrow is going to promote its own interests. It's going to have its own trouble, and you don't need to add to today's trouble by worrying about what tomorrow's trouble might be. Today has enough trouble for you and me. And so when you seek the Father's concerns first, all those things that you also need, he says, will be added to what you already have. And so my inclination is to remind myself, okay, what do I already have? Well, I have a relationship with a heavenly Father that loves and cares for me and desires to meet my needs. I have a Father that always does what is right and good in every circumstance. I have a Father that provides more for me than all the other creatures and things in this world that He provides for. And that's why at the end of Matthew 6.34, the very last verse there, Jesus says, So listen, don't even begin to be anxious again. Don't let anxiety surface in your prayer because you can't have the anxiety and come to me trusting that I'm going to meet all of your needs. They don't work together. And here's the fourth lesson of application. Kind of a conglomeration of a few thoughts. How can I come to the Father expecting He will answer my needs when I'm anxious about my life, wondering whether or not He's going to meet them? How can I come to Him properly the way Jesus has taught us to come if I'm really only focused on my carnal concerns and never address the interests and concerns of my Father in Heaven first? When I have a real desire to see prosperity and happiness in my life and long to truly see His kingdom and His will done on the earth, doesn't that justify my continuous praying to Him? Doesn't knowing that I come to Him in my weakness and my frailty imply that I need to pray humbly and frankly about those weaknesses and frailties every time I come to Him? I don't want my weakness and frailty and sin to get in the way of what I desire from Him. And so finally, shouldn't I come to the Lord with a double affection? Concerned about the present evil that might come from my own sinfulness, but nonetheless trusting in the Father faithfully 
that he is who he says he is, and he has promised to do what he says he will do. Folks, it's the beginning of a new year. Let's decide to pray expectantly and pray the Father's concerns and the Father's desires. And that way we'll know how to approach him, our Heavenly Father, the author of life, for the things that we need and rightly have the privilege to ask of him. Let's pray. Father, don't allow our familiarity with this passage to get in the way of thoughtfulness and how we might consider you more clearly and more fully. Father, as we continue now to lift up your name in song, as we meet together afterwards and share with each other and encourage and engage each other, would you be there with us in our thoughts and in our hearts and lift up your own name among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.